I'd like to say something, and we're trailing now, but very rapidly about the relationship between Christianity and the Bible and history. And history. Some well-meaning, simple Christians would say, well, history is his story, meaning the story of God. The answer to that is yes and no. God himself has no history because he changes not. And neither is there as much as a shadow of a change in him, but if by his story you mean the story which he is telling not of himself, but of creation and the way it develops, and more specifically of uh, human beings and the major things that human beings in all the nations have been doing, well then I'm happy with the definition of history as his separate word story, otherwise not. Uh, a few distinctions then. Uh, we must distinguish between history and prehistory. Now, don't think that prehistory relates to events which didn't happen, nor that prehistory relates to events which did not happen in a definite order. There's been an awful lot of discussion, particularly in Holland the last 15 years, as to whether Genesis 1 is historical or non-historical or ahistorical or prehistorical. And uh, the answer to that question, of course, will depend largely in your definition of those words. I would say it's prehistorical. In other words, there's nothing historical in Genesis 1. If by history you mean what man has done, for the simple reason that there is no man, right down to Genesis 1.26. So everything up to that is prehistorical. But when you go further and say, therefore it didn't happen, well, now frankly we're in a heretical area. Of course, what we recorded in Genesis 1, 1 through 126, did happen. And what's more, it happened in the very order in which the events there recorded are described. I don't think there's any room for us to adopt some kind of a framework hypothesis which is going to say the order of the days of formation are, are not important. It was prehistorical, yes, but it happened and it happened in the order as recorded, which doesn't mean that many other things didn't happen which haven't been recorded. The Bible doesn't say that Genesis 1 gives you a total record of everything that's happened in the world prior to the emergence of man, or the creation of man, rather. Uh, that's not stated. But every word of it is correct, is uh, chronologically accurate, and is prehistorically accurate. Uh, further, second, I think we've got to... So, we've distinguished now between history and prehistory. Or should I say, between paleontology and the post-paleontological era. Paleontology dealing with fossil remnants of creatures that really did live, as opposed to uh, hell-bound evolutionary scientists' uh, misinterpretation of the paleontological finds, which is something different. Uh, paleontology deals with bones of prehistoric animals that are no longer around and attempts to reassemble the, the skeletons. I think we're going to have to, to say that these animals existed. Some would say they were only first wiped out in the flood. Well, this is a problem that I'm not going to deal with in the lecture, but may possibly in a couple of questions later. But clearly, it seems to me, paleontology is not historical and is probably pre-human. But second, even restricting ourselves to that period of the Earth's <coughs> happenings, after the advent of Adam as the first man, 
I think we must distinguish again between archaeology and history. And the difference is very simple. Archaeology and history both refer to the deeds of man and don't refer to deeds of pre-human animals, which may or may not be any longer with us. Uh, but archaeology is dealing with ancient artifacts, chunks of broken pots and pans, uh, perhaps to some extent with fossil remains of primitive men that lived after the time of Adam, correctly interpreted. I don't think we should regard that as paleontology, possibly as ethnology. But uh, archaeology, while dealing with human remains and attempting to sort them out in the order in which uh, now extinct human beings or tribes of human beings made these uh, various uh, cultural objects, archaeology is not dealing with inscriptions or with writing. Technically, archaeology may be concerned with a pyramid, but is not concerned with the inscription on the pyramid. Inscription on the pyramid is a historical matter and not an archaeological matter. So by history, I mean written records of things that happened. Now, perhaps I'm being a little technical here, but now you know what I mean when I talk about history. So, seeing that nobody in any part of the world, as far as we can now judge, uh, left any written records prior to approximately 3000 BC, I think there's great merit in us considering everything prior to 3000 BC as pre-historical, not pre-archaeological, and certainly not paleontological, but pre-historical, <coughs> prior to history. Now, understand me, I'm not saying that nobody could write or did write prior to 3000 BC. Seems to me very probable that Adam did write, particularly in as much as the second Adam, Jesus Christ, bent down and wrote something in the sand when the woman was taken in adultery. Uh, also, it's uh, uh, clear to me that Noah probably wrote, had the ability to write, because uh, when he was inside of the ark, which I think was probably certainly prior to 3000 BC, uh, even Noah had a remarkable memory, uh, or otherwise he recorded the various dates on which events happened in the ark. The, the, just read Genesis chapter 7 and 8 and you'll see what I mean. On the somethingth day of the somethingth month, this happened, it stopped raining, the ark grounded on Mount Ararat, I opened the window, the dove flew out, the raven came back, and then finally the earth was dry and I went out. And it's all beautifully recorded. Probably he was notching it uh, on one of the beams of the ark, which means he was making a historical record of it. Then the question is whether Moses, who wrote the book of Genesis in its present, totally inspired form, sort of got this information dynamically and immediately from God or whether Moses was given pre-Mosaic records of these matters by God either records that Noah had taken out of the ark and buried and Noah had rediscovered or copies of the Noachic record which came into the hands of Moses we're not told which but don't discount the possibility of Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, using written historical records in respect of some of the events which happened pre-Mosaically, now recorded by Moses in the book of Genesis, because you record that King Josiah 
did discover pre-Josiah records uh, in the palace of the temple, was it not? And when he read them and he saw how far the people had gone away from the Lord, he immediately called for a reformation in terms of the previously recorded Mosaic documents. This may very well have been the case uh, of Moses. We don't know. So when we're talking history, we are talking... We are not saying that nobody knew how to write prior to A.D. 3000, but we are saying that the remnants of what anybody has ever written in the past do not stretch back beyond 3000 B.C. And they don't. And they don't. Uh, there was a time in the 19th century when uh, evolutionists assumed that Chinese history and uh, uh, Egyptian history probably went back to 4000 BC but we now know better Chinese history does not go back much beyond about 2200 BC at the most and when you push it back further than that you get into very nebulous legendary areas uh, that frankly are more mythical than they are historical Egyptian Babylonian history will go back to about 2500 BC maybe a little further back Mesopotamian history Indian history, no way, 15,000 B.C. and that's it. Archaeological remnants, Mahendo uh, Day and all of that uh, prior to that, but that's not historical, that's prehistorical. Egyptian inscriptions may, will go back to 3,000 B.C., stretching it, pushing it back as far as you can to 3,200, but that's about the limit. And there we, there we stop. Well now, looking at the Garden of Eden, with the creation of man, he is now going to undergo a history. And by history, we do not mean every, a record of, a written record of everything that every man has ever done. Such as if I write down in my diary at uh, 6.42 a.m. and this day I combed my hair and brushed my teeth and I make a similar record the next day. This is an accurate record of what happened, but you'd hardly call it historical, meaning that this is a world-shaking event. Uh, so we need to distinguish between recordings of happenings and uh, records of significant happenings, which have had a great impact in the development of world culture. Now, I'm using the word history in that sense. A written record, by that I don't just mean writing books, but I'd include things like making flags, uh, uh, inscriptions, monuments, temples, uh, particularly those with inscriptions on them, anything which has somehow been made by man which gives an indication of something important that happened at that period of time. All of this you would bracket under history. Now, uh, the most important thing that God said to Adam was, of course, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue the earth and the sea and the sky. Uh, fill the earth. Replenish the earth. This suggests, I believe, that it was the will of God before the fall for the descendants of Adam to have left one another and distributed themselves in God's good time over the face of the earth. And a little later in Genesis chapter 2, when Adam sees that gorgeous creature Eve, he says, this is now finally bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. Now, that's an important statement, quite apart from the marital aspects of it, which are very important too. 
But man will leave his father and mother. That's before the fall. So even if man had not fallen into sin, children would ultimately have taken off and left homes. Now they left homes, they would have gone further and further away from home, one generation after another, perhaps like the Irishmen do to today, waiting until their mothers died and then before getting married. Of course, no one would have died then, so there's another problem. But anyway, they would ultimately have trekked further and further away from the Garden of Eden, overspilled it, and no doubt, some of Adam's children would have gone to Africa, others would have gone to East Asia, others would have gone into Siberia, others to Europe, and ultimately, as in fact they did even after the fall, would have gone to North and South America and Australia and New Zealand and the South Sea Islands, which is the way in which it did in fact work out. And as they'd done this, they, the various groups of people would have gone into different parts of the world with different climates, different geographical areas. Some of them would have gone into a desert region like Arabia, where the uh, circumstances would have been such that they would not, for example, easily have been able to have produced wheat in Arabia, so they wouldn't have developed a word for wheat, uh, and this would have affected the, the cultural direction. Others of them would have trekked into China, and in fact they did, but China is a very landlocked area, cut off by the Himalayas from India in the south and by barren deserts from the Soviet Union, and uh, so the Chinese have lived in relative isolation and still do, largely. Those who go and live in the Indian subcontinent, those enormous temperatures, and a great variety within it are effectively cut off by the Himalayas from the rest of Asia and also live in relative isolation, as do the people in Australia until the advent of more sophisticated methods of communication later. And so we see that as the people of the world trekked away from one another, particularly after Noah came out of the ark and after the confusion of tongues at the Tower of Babel, when God twisted the tongues of man, uh, the uh, cohortative is used there in the Hebrew, which means that God began to twist the tongues and drove them apart. Don't think of something terribly miraculous, a sort of proto-Pentecostalistic phenomena in reverse, as if suddenly everybody starts babbling. Uh, the, the suggestion of the Hebrew is rather that this was a gradual process, same way dialects develop in America. The first Puritans come to Massachusetts and they all more or less speak the same dialect, but as they spread inland and some go north, south, east, west, they start talking differently. That kind of thing. It may have taken place over a couple of centuries for all we know. But the net result of it, which was of course miraculously initiated, was that people could no longer understand one another's language and so they split up, as God had been intended men to do in the first place. But this time under sin, of course, they split up with some hostility toward one another, which God had never intended for man prior to the fall, and they went out into the various regions of the world to establish their own communities with their own language, uh, with their own historical traditions, to some extent geographically conditioned, and particularly conditioned by the religion of the various people in the various parts of the world. Well now, in dealing with events of the major historical importance, what we have to do in the first place in teaching history uh, is seeing that all men uh, originate from Adam and Eve, that God in fact drove them apart from one another uh, into the various regions, and that in this sense the history of all the communities flows from the hand of God. 
Uh, the second thing that we've got to put across, I'm summarizing now for a time crunch, the second thing that we're going to have to see is that all men, including Christian men, are affected by sin. But some men and their historical setting are more affected by sin than others. I was so pleased when that great uh, Dutch theologian, many of the Dutch today are very frankly tinged with socialism, including those that claim to be Calvinists, and it's extremely sad. Uh, but one of the more sensible and uh, conservative-minded ones, Zuidema, made this remarkable statement. He said, for anybody, meaning well, to equate the history of Tibet, a pagan country, uh, with the history of a great, in the past, largely Christianized country such as Holland, and to say that the two are equally important is blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And I am totally in agreement with that statement, even though it would be extremely unpopular to say this at the United Nations. Now, what did Zaydemar mean when he said that? He meant, as the decrees of Dort tell us, that God sends his missionaries when he will, where he will, and to whom he will, at the times that he will. And it's obvious that a nation such as Holland, that has been exposed to Christian influences for, uh, oh, at least 14 or 15 centuries now, and rather strongly exposed to biblical Christianity since the time of the Reformation, it's obvious that other things being equal, uh, much more Christian influence must have gotten through to the Dutch culture than has gotten through to the Tibetan culture from which all Christians, and for that matter all white men, were banned until Sir Francis Young's husband uh, blundered into Tibet less than a century ago. This is obvious. How can you expect the quality of Tibetan culture, blasphemous and pagan in its vicious, horrible form of Buddhism as it was prior to the communist takeover and no doubt probably worse since the Red Chinese takeover of Tibet than it was previously and that was bad enough. How could you possibly egalitarianly compare the pagan culture of Tibet with the much greater Christianized culture of Holland? It may go down great at the UN but it just isn't true. And it is indeed to blaspheme the Holy Spirit's sovereign influence on the, on, on the Dutch people. Now I'm saying this because I don't believe the Dutch are inherently superior to the Tibetans. Understand me. I'm saying that what the Dutch have achieved, they've achieved only by the grace of God in spite of their own total depravity. Uh, and I'm saying God must be given all the glory to it. But I am saying with the decrees of Dort that God sends his Christianizing elements to the nations when he will, where he will, and how he will, and in the way in which he will. And the fact remains that this great country has been much blessed by the influence of Christianity since its inception. I don't believe America is the country that's had the most Christian exposure in the world ever. But I do believe it is one of the few countries that has been very largely exposed to Christian Protestant influence. And I think it's very unfair to expect a nation such as uh, Samoa or... Uh, Paraguay, let us say, to come up with the historical, with the cultural uh, productions of the United States of America. It's unrealistic, because you just have not had the Christian influences in that community yet, which you have had over the years in the United States. 
And so the second thing we need to recognize, in spite of total depravity, is the varying degrees of influence of Christianity, and by that I mean Old Testament religion too, on the various nations of the world up to this present point. And the degree to which Christianity has filtered down meaningfully uh, into the various nations and has influenced them. Uh, the third thing that I think we've frankly got to recognize is that uh, without in, in, in any way becoming racialistic is that there are current differences in thinking between one community in one part of the world and in another. And I believe the inability of most American liberals to see this is absolutely catastrophic uh, when it relates to international affairs. Let's just take Indonesia as a good example. The Indonesian mentality, particularly during the Sukarno era, uh, was frankly quite foreign to the Western mind. Uh, and it was thought that if the West would just be nice to Indonesia, kick the dirty Dutch out, and the Indonesians were saying, kill the Dutch. Uh, I get some joy in reminding the, the Dutch of this at times. Perhaps it's a little narcissism in my part, but anyway, this was the extent to which the Indonesians resented them and hated them and loathed them and got rid of them, and the United States says, yes, kick the dirty Dutch out. So the dirty Dutch got kicked out. But then, uh, what wasn't recognized sufficiently in the West, not even in Holland for that matter, uh, was uh, the degree of religious frenzy which the Indonesians were working up at this point. And it's very interesting and significant. When the Dutch were pacifistically uh, um, yielding to the Indonesians and feeling all kinds of post-colonial guilt of all the terrible things they'd done to the Indonesians, and conveniently forgetting all the horrible things that one branch of Indonesians had been doing to other Indonesians prior to the Dutch moving in there and reducing a lot of this bloodshed. Well, while the Dutch uh, were in this frame of mind, uh, Sukarno, who fortunately is no longer with us, made a very significant statement. He called upon all of the Imams in Indonesia, that's the Muslim religious leaders, not to pray for peace with the Dutch, but to pray for victory over the Dutch. Now, this is important, because at the time that many churches, not only the World Council of Church Establishment in the West, but even many misguided fundamentalists were praying for negotiation, the Indonesian nation were praying for nothing of that, but uh, infused by this Muslim principle of jihad, the holy warfare, they were determined to drive these wretched baptized infidel, non-Muslims, who happen to be white, incidentally, out of the country. Now, it's very important for us to recognize the way in which these people were thinking. But you see, that was overlooked uh, in the White House, and for that matter, even in The Hague, in Holland. It was thought, well, what we're dealing with here are people who just the same as we are, who are just a little bit darker in skin color, and that's all there is to it. The, the religious root uh, presently governing the behavior of the Indonesian people at that stage of the development was totally ignored. For that reason, the Indonesians turned nasty against the Chinese minority in Indonesia, uh, which was a trading minority, and gave them a very rough time too, because the Chinese weren't Muslims either. And for that matter, they weren't of the same race. And we need to be realists in understanding this. And frankly, I am horrified by the present doctrine of detent when uh, the people in and around Washington 
think that a Russian, and worse still, a red Chinese, is just some kind of an American, you know, who environmentally somewhat awkward, but if they can just give them a few, mo a few more yo-yos and, and lollipops uh, and candy, well, then they'll think exactly the way we do and will play Ring-a-Ling of Roses and will be happy ever after. And that just isn't so. The Russian, at this stage of his minimal degree of Christianization, does not think like an American. And if we understand Russian history and the three trends of it, and we know the, the European theory of Russian history and the Slavophile theory and the Eurasian theory, if we know something about this, and we know that Russians are not Americans, and we know something about the Chinese mind and its isolationism and the, and the tension in the Chinese mind, uh, oh, for, for many centuries, uh, between uh, two this worldliness and two other uh, worldliness with the with a dominant dialectical emphasis on two this worldliness which is so beautifully represented in the present thought of Mao Zedong if we understand these issues we're not going to make these dangerous historical mistakes that we're making in international affairs right now and the reason why we do this is that we're not conscious of the extent to which Christianity has molded our own thinking or a lack of Christianity as the case may be we need to be critical about the religious root uh, of, of uh, the influence of religion on the history of each of the groups of the world. Uh, thirdly, if we are Christians, we are going to acknowledge that the very central event of history is, of course, the incarnation of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, the Son of God who became flesh and dwelt amongst us and who gave us the great commission to go into all the world and to turn all disciples, all nations into his disciples. That's exactly what the Greek says. Mathein pantas tus ethnus. Not go and make a few converts here and a few there, but go and turn all the nations into disciples. But even if you're going to try and do exactly what Christ says, and very few missionaries are trying to do that, or have ever tried to do it, because they, they haven't read the Greek very deeply, but even if we try to do that, you cannot turn all nations into the world in the same order. What I'm trying to say is, you can't equally, with minimal Christianizing forces, uh, start Christianizing, say, the Chinese, the Indians, the Paraguayans, the Tahitians, simultaneously, proportionally to the same extent. It doesn't work that way. One person will get a call to go to Japan, another person will get a call to go to Turkey, and so forth, and they're very, going to Turkey or to Paraguay is going to mean that someone is not at that stage going to, say, uh, Dagestan or Afghanistan or, or Azerbaijan or wherever it may be. And so the rate at which the nations are becoming Christianized, the point in history at which the Christianization process starts, the intensity of the Christianization process, the intensity of the establishment of the churches and particularly of the filtering down of the Christian principles from the thus established churches into the warp and the roof of the culture of these countries, I say, varies greatly. For example, Korea was much blessed in having an enormous amount of American missionaries, chiefly Presbyterians, who decided to go to Korea about a century ago with remarkable uh, results. But for a variety of reasons, very few missionaries did in fact go to Japan. 
which is a closely related nation to Korea, although the Japanese and the Koreans don't think so. Uh, the, the, the situation, therefore, is that oh, somewhere between 5 and 10% of the South Korean nation today are thoroughly Christianized, Calvinized, in fact, and wonderful people. Whereas in Japan, as of now, less than 0.5 of 1% of the Japanese people as of now have been baptized in any shape, form, or size. And there are at least 100 cities in Japan today with more than 30,000 inhabitants where there is not one single baptized person, be he Catholic, Protestant, or Jehovah's Witness. Uh, that's not the situation in South Korea. Well now, very frankly, even though the Japanese may think that they are the cultural equals of the Koreans, they are not. They have a superior technological culture, yes, but the overall degree of Christianization of the Japanese culture is vastly inferior at the moment to the overall degree of Christianization of the less developed Korean culture as of now. And I'm not preaching democracy and egalitarianism because it's false. I mean, I'm telling it like it is. So, when we teach history, we need to take these factors into account. But we also need to see that uh, history merely records the chief events in the life of any particular nation. Uh, let's just say a few words about the American nation at the moment. Uh, it is a historical event that declaration of the War of Independence broke out in 1776. That is a historical fact and an event. Uh, it is not a matter of historical significance yet that um, a young performer uh, performed uh, Tchaikovsky's Violin Concerto uh, in a certain music hall last night. A young composer should later become a man of some stature in the musical world then, looking back, his uh, performance of Tchaikovsky's Violin Concerto last night may well prove to have been uh, a historical event. Um, Strauss, the great waltzer, uh, you recall that uh, the first time he put over his uh, program, it was against his father's wishes, and his father didn't want him to be a musician. His father's a bit jealous, and he hired a gang of folks to break this up, and he was determined that would be the end of uh, Johann Strauss. But somehow, uh, the people that came to beat up um, and break up Johann Strauss's thing, they themselves started waltzing, because it was such great music. And what was thought to have been a fiasco and of no historical significance whatsoever was later seen to have been the turning point of Johann Strauss's life, you see. Uh, and so it's awfully difficult for us to determine what of the many events happening in the world now will later prove to have been of historical significance. But some events obviously are, like Kissinger's negotiation of the Panama Canal. Uh, that very clearly is a matter, I think, that I can already see of far-reaching implications which can directly influence the wheel of the woe, uh, I think the woe, of the citizens of the United States, and I'll even go as far as say the woe of the people of Panama. But of course, some kind of names may not agree with me on that uh, at this stage of the game. So we've got to recognize that it's sometimes difficult to determine exactly what is of historical importance. Now, not everything that happens which is significant 
is historically significant. Things can be musically significant, educationally significant, uh, without necessarily being historically significant. To be historically significant, an event must meaningfully effect the direction in which culture develops. Detent is extremely historically significant. Perhaps Brezhnev's uh, telling Kissinger to get lost uh, because he's not going to allow the Jews to come out of Soviet Union because that's none of Kissinger's business. Uh, perhaps uh, that statement of, uh, of Brezhnev may prove to be historically significant. I hope so, but I don't think so. I think probably the U.S. will again blunder into another form of detent in spite of that. But uh, hopefully I'll be a false prophet on that part. So it's sometimes difficult to, to understand exactly what is of historical significance. What we need to say in the two minutes left <laughs> uh, is that it is the purpose of God for the gospel of the kingdom to be taken to all nations, for this to filter down and to affect and to some extent to restructure the historical life of all the nations, including their political life, uh, and in this way to bring about a much greater degree of Christianization of the world's nations than has yet taken place. An event of major historical significance, of course, was the conversion of Constantine to Christianity at the beginning of the fourth century. I know a lot of Christians are uh, terribly sad that it happened because it opened the door of the churches for pagans and all of that, but the fact remains, as a result of his at least nominal conversion, the heat was turned off persecuting Christians, and Christians were able to emerge and take historical control uh, particularly in politics and elsewhere, and uh, meaningfully expand Christian control, however nominal, of the entire Mediterranean basis, basin for many centuries. So too, the Protestant Reformation of Luther was an event of major historical importance. So as we teach history, we're going to hit the following areas, the creation in the Garden of Eden, God's twisting of the tongues of people at the Tower of Babel to bring about his originally conceived purpose of populating the earth and a polycentric, I believe the American word is a pluriform society throughout the world, but all of it ultimately subject to the rule of King Jesus. Third, greater and lesser degrees of common grace and of special grace in each community depending upon the degree of exposure to the regenerating influences of the Christian gospel. Fourth, the central historical significance of the incarnation of Jesus Christ and of his great commission requiring the Christianization of all the nations of the world at his time in his predestined order uh, and the historical impact this would have upon them. And then finally, as I said in my sermon last night, the history of the world shall not ultimately prove to have been in vain. If you turn to the very last page of the Bible, you'll see that when we reach the new Jerusalem and the new earth, we read this amazing statement in Revelation 21, verses 26, 24 through 26. The kings of the earth shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into the new Jerusalem. No, when we really think about that, that's an amazing statement. Abraham Kuyper, in his four-volume classic Wonderful Ending concerning the consummation, spent, oh, 50 or 100 pages just, just dealing with the cultural significance of those texts. And he says, and I believe he's right, that that means 
that when we finally get to the new earth, which is this same earth and none other, but then devoid of sin, cleansed by fire, but not annihilated by fire, that the kings of the nations that are saved will bring, bring the glory and the honor of the nations and preserve them into the new Jerusalem forever. The music of Rimsky-Korsakov and of Beethoven and the beautiful paintings of El Greco in Spain and Toledo and the carpets of Afghanistan and Persia and the exquisite ivory work of the Chinese uh, uh, people and the beautiful silk uh, creations of Japan particularly such of these things as have been done by saved people to God's glory but even the good elements in these things that have been done by the unregenerate not meaningfully to the glory of God but which nevertheless do glorify God on account of his common grace all of this cleansed from its sinful accretions and brought by the kings of the nations that are saved all of this honor and glory of the nations into the new Jerusalem into its halls and museums to be admired by the people of God and to be preserved forever history is for real uh, history is important history has an eschatological focus on the new earth to come and that uh, ladies and gentlemen gives immense importance to everything that you and I do to everything that is being done by the world's leaders and will give us the desire to do such a good job that what we are doing may prove to be historically significant in having an impact on the life of men on this planet not just for now but also for the new earth forever this then is to be the perspective on which we are to communicate national history and world history that all things are from God all things are through God and all things are to God to whom be honor and glory forever thank you <coughs> I was wondering, uh, Dr. Lee, if the Christian uh, endeavors to acquire a Christian understanding of history, are there any uh, history texts, surveys that you would particularly recommend, uh, say two or three books would be of a special help? Um, one, I, I, was, I was wondering, what, what, your, what is your view of uh, Samuel Elliott Morrison's Oxford History of the American People? Uh, I'm not acquainted with that work. Now, one of the urgent needs uh, is, and our foundation, Christian Studies Center, and there's literature for any of you who are interested and who haven't got it already, one of the, our prime projects is to collect together lists of books written from a Christian biblical perspective on mathematics, history, geography, and everything else under the sun. Our problem is so little of this has been written from a Christian biblical perspective in the English language. A significant amount of books have been written in German, quite a lot in Dutch, quite a lot in the Afrikaans language in South Africa, and perhaps here and there elsewhere. But the best book on the Christian approach to, to, uh, to art is written in French by Léon Vincilius, L'Esthétique de Convent, which has never been translated into English to my uh, understanding. Uh, and that desperately needs translating and so uh, we, the two things we need to do and that's establish what little is now available in the English language 
seeing the Anglo-Saxon culture has unfortunately ever since the demise of Puritanism and more particularly the demise of uh, hardline Calvinism in this great country about a hundred years ago been infected by liberalism and, and, and so our textbooks have presented this and even a lot of it's rubbed off on well-meaning evangelicals too. We've got to rake up these works such as is available in English and catalog them and put them out and we're doing this as fast as we can. Second, we've got to have a crash translation program to get the good things that have been produced in other countries translated as soon as we can or at least on tape into the English language. And oh, there's been some fine books written in Christian economics in Dutch, for example, and some other books still claiming to give a Christian perspective in Dutch that are not so fine. They're frankly infected by socialism, though the writers don't understand this. And then another problem you're going to have is you're going to take a book that's written in Germany, Holland, South Africa, and program it for the American audience, you're going to have to somewhat rewrite part of the books. Some of the writings of Kuiper are absolutely tremendous. I think of a book that Thicke wrote, Our Political Program, 100 years old, but still relevant. And yet, chunks of that book are unintelligible even to a modern Dutchman from a historical viewpoint, still more to an American. So you're going to have to doctor those things and find out what's relevant and what isn't relevant. We're working on the list now. Now, as to what's available right now, that's your question. <laughs> yeah, Rush Dooley, uh, no, uh, Greg Singer's Theological Interpretation of American History is good. I'm told, though I haven't read it, there's a book by Albert Heimer of the Christian Reformed Church, uh, which tries to do the same thing. Uh, you may want to look at Rush Dooley's book on history, uh, Christian Philosophy of History, I believe it's called. Uh, I myself am starting to write a book on the uh, principles of politics, biblical principles of politics with specific reference to American history, but I'm not going very far with that yet. Ask your prayers for it. Uh, you can read Dutch and you're interested in what's been happening in Europe since the French Revolu Revolution. There's four volumes by Nivenhuis. Trying to recall the title of the book. The Dreigen von het Westen, The Threat to the West. You may want to read, and this is in English, Doyewitz in the Twilight of Western Thought, although it's very philosophical. It's not very historical. Uh, right, Rushduni's Foundation of Social Order. Uh, which is to some extent you may even want to look at my book on uh, Christian introduction to the history of philosophy but it's more on philosophers and the history of philosophy than it is on history itself that's all I can suggest for the moment in English but in other languages it's quite a lot available already Yes, but they're difficult to get hold of. You can buy them secondhand. I've got most of them myself. In fact, our foundation, let me share this with you, and Bernie Harn, president of Dort College, is thrilled about it. We are right now, our foundation, translating Kuiper's best work, I think it's his best work, his three-volume pro reggae for the king, in which he declares from the Bible the duty that rests on every Christian to take the gifts that God has given him, be they mathematical, philosophical, geographical gifts or whatever, and to program them to the glory of God and to claim up all of these areas. And it's a wonderful book, in spite of its degree of eschatological pessimism, which I do not share.
Well, I hope when we've got it translated that you give us an order because it's the best thing. <laughs> true that Calvin did kick dogs, but I would but I would the facts of the situation are that the reprobates, or at least the as then still unregenerate, so hated the guy's tremendous preaching that they'd stand under his window at night and yell out Cain, Cain in French, which sounded something like Cavan, Cavan in French, which is Calvin Calvin. And and they would actually sass their dogs on Calvin when he walked down the street. The idea that Calvin ruled with an iron fist is below me. I wish he had done, <laughs> but he never had that much power, otherwise Geneva would have been a lot better than it was. And, and so these wicked men actually, you see, they cared for their dogs more than they did for Calvin, the image of God, so much the grace of the liberal. But anyway, they sassed their dogs on Calvin. Well, now look, if you had a huge, hungry-looking dog lovingly eyeing your hind quarters and bearing its teeth in it, wouldn't you kick it? <laughs> And second, before I forget, I have a little book coming out, the Chattanooga Lectures that uh, David Berg here uh, heard on, on the history of culture, art, science, and literature, the whole thing, as it did five lectures that develops from Genesis through the New Earth, influence of Christianity on it, that I hope will be in print this year. It'll be about 150 pages. I think it will be in print this year. And... Uh, even though I don't like recommending my own books, I think it may be a valuable place to start to study even of history from. That'll be in English. I heard Paul Woolley say on a case that uh, professor of church history at the Westminster Seminary that having been a professional historian all his life, he'd come to the conclusion that uh, nobody had ever learned any lessons from history. And uh, about learning lessons from a lot of people shy away from that. They say they really, you know, the circumstances are different, this and that. There are no fighting principles or lessons to be learned. I wonder if you'd say something about that. When you're teaching a history class, is it legitimate to draw inferences and teach lessons? Or? 
on the basis of uh, mistakes that have been made by people and so on? Yes and no. And I'm not a Bartian when I say that, but it's perfectly true. Yes. The ancient Greeks, uh, pre-Socratics, particularly in, uh, in Western Turkey, they had a certain theory of history, history of Heraclitus, as you know. The idea was history is circular. Things just go round and round in circles, and history is constantly repeating itself. Uh, Lenin, of course, uh, made Heraclitus his great hero, and Lenin has funneled, in, funneled into doctrinaire communism, the most influential living religion of the world today, be it known, this Heraclitean view of history. And you find it, by the way, even in Engels, uh, Marx's friend, in his uh, oh. Dialectics of Nature, in which he says that history basically does this thing, capitalism, Socialism, which destroys pure communism, and then the universe freezes up, and then a couple of billion years later, uh, it starts warming up again, and then it goes through primitive communism, the fall, the development of, of slavery and feudalism, capitalism, all over again, round and round and round. Uh, of course, this is typical of Indian thought, the idea of reincarnation, karma, over and over again. So that's the circular theory of history. Now I think that some Christians have overreacted against that. Well, if history is circular like this, then obviously you should learn something from history. You know that uh, one revolution later, you look back exactly where you started from, you know what to expect. Some Christians have overreacted and they said, no, no, we don't believe in a circular theory of history. We believe in a linear theory of history, which does that. And there's creation, and there's the Garden of Eden, and there's Calvary, and there's where we are now, and there's the second coming, and that's it. Uh, I don't believe that this is entirely biblical, although the basic pattern is linear. But I think if we really look at the biblical pattern, we'll see that it does this. In fact, doesn't Ecclesiastes say this in chapter 1? Nothing new under the sun, everything goes round and round in circles, but as it does this, it goes further along the line. Now, of course, this situation is not that situation, but there are certain similarities present in it. And, of course, those who will not learn the lessons of this period of history are to some extent repeat it somewhat in the next cycle. Well, I hope that answers the question. I'd like to ask a question about what we uh, you talked about on Saturday morning about uh, the triune God. And I grew up with the idea that we also were a triunity with the mind, soul, and spirit. And about a year ago, a um, lecture was presented that I heard that we had only a body and a soul. If, if that's the case, um, is this a heresy? Um, one or the other view? I mean, how do you explain the scripture verse that speaks about um, dividing the two-edged sword, dividing the soul and the spirit? Oh, okay. We'll begin with the last one. Uh, that's Hebrews 4.16, recorded, 4.12. Uh, what exactly does that say? Does it say only dividing the... I think it also says the marrow. Yes. Okay, well, the problem is, you see, it proves too much. It doesn't just say body and soul, it says marrow too. Does that mean that marrow is the third part of man? <laughs> and then also there's a similar statement at the end of First Thessalonians 5 saying, may the Lord preserve your body, soul, and spirit of something faultless to the coming of the Lord. And then the Lord Jesus says, 
in, in the Gospels, we love the Lord our God with all of our mind, body, soul, power. Now, does that power mean the fourth part of man? So, I think we put all of this together, we can see that you cannot construe that, any one of these texts, as if it is giving an anthropology of man. Because you've got to take everything in the Bible and not just one text and write that one text. That's the first point. Second, I would not say that the idea that man is three-part instead of two-part is heretical in the sense that anyone who believes it is going to go to hell. I do believe it to be somewhat inaccurate. Now, it may be said, but it's so beautiful. What a beautiful pattern in man of the Trinity. Well, that's true, but remember that not everything in man patterns the Trinity because we're not the triune God. We're the only his image. Uh, what about how many sexes are there? One, two, or three? Now you may say, well, if only with three sexes, wouldn't this be a beautiful revelation of the Trinity? <laughs> well, the fact remains that there are only two sexes, and, and even in the two-ness of the sexes, they're, they're a complete complement of one another. So too in the Savior's incarnation. How many natures did he have? <laughs> two or three? Well, we know the answer is two. Uh, divine and human. Well, why not three? Wouldn't that again beautifully portray the Trinity? Now, the truth of the matter is, I believe, that a man is one part and two part and three part. Though I don't like the word part, as if it's sort of a compound jigsaw puzzle kind of stuff together. The truth of the matter is, I believe, that man has a body, which, as I said, God formed out of the dust of the ground. And while forming it, God breathed into him the breath of life, and he became a living soul. It doesn't say that God gave him a living soul. He, the total man, became a living soul. So the soul is not something there. The soul is down to the fingernails and the eyeballs as much as down to the big toe. The soul is right through the body. In fact, try and think of your soul as your hand, and your body as a glove, that the whole body is indwelt by the whole soul, just like a, a hand indwells and maneuvers a glove. But, having made that distinction, let's say further that when the soul is totally withdrawn from the body, the body dies completely. And is only revivified when the soul is reunited with it from heaven on the day uh, when the Lord comes again. But now looking at the soul, <coughs> Within the soul is a kind of trinity, if you want to look at it that way, there's a, a rational part of man, <coughs> reason, there's his, his will, uh, and there's his emotions. Uh, or, looking at the soul again, you can perhaps say, and this is very tenuous, that when the soul relates to God, it's usually, but not always called spirit. When the same soul relates to fellow creatures like plants and animals, it's soul. And, and this is sustained in scripture. But the only problem is that sometimes in scripture it uses the word soul and not spirit when it's related to God. Sometimes it uses the word spirit and not soul when discussing what we've got in common with the animals. The great flaw of trichotomy which is what you apparently taught when you're young, is it assumes that only man has a spirit. Uh, and that the soul is what we have in common with the animals, but man alone has a spirit. Well, that's just not scriptural, because we're distinctly taught in uh, Genesis 6, I believe it is, in the flood, 
that everything that has the spirit of life in its nostrils, not the soul of life, perished in the flood. So animals do have spirits. Another problem there is if we think that the soul of man is more or less the same kind of a creature as the soul of an animal, this is frankly yielding too much to evolutionism, although it's not intended this way. The fact of the matter is that man's body is totally different to the body of an animal. Is man's spirit is totally different to the spirit of an animal. Man's soul is totally different to the spirit to the soul of an animal, which again is totally different from the body of an of a plant or the, the soul of a plant. See, the Bible also says that plants have souls, meaning by that a living principle. But the soul of a plant is very different from the soul of an animal. And that again is very different from the soul of a human being. And that again is very different from the soul of an angel. So we've got to make those distinctions. But there are not aspects of the spirit alias the soul of man, reason, will, and emotion to reflect the Trinity. And, and so too the body. No, classic division, head, thorax, abdomen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing 
and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.